Amen. Let's stand this morning. Isn't that wonderful to, to see? Gee, you hand my phone. I meant to bring it up. To see uh, your children uh, being baptized following Jesus. There's just nothing greater uh, than that. And just just uh, so so beautiful to see. Miss Connie, could I ask you to come up? I'm not going to make you preach or anything. Uh if you were here last Sunday, I just, I, you know, a lot of times we just don't sometimes know the rest of the story. And I'm not going to make you talk, darling. You, you can if you want to. <laughs> You'll probably cry. Uh, but uh, she sent me, you know, last Sunday we were here. And they were here last Sunday. And, of course, at the end of the service, uh, then I, the Saturday night before last Sunday, I, the Lord showed me a dream. And I saw Miss Connie. All these years she's been here, I've never called her up, prayed for her. We, we, we haven't talked or anything and communicated. And I just saw the Lord said she had a problem with her head, headaches, dizziness. And I saw myself praying for her. And that's how the prophetic, that's called gifts of the Holy Spirit, in case you wonder. I'm not some, you know, I'm, I'm, it's just the gifts of the Holy Spirit. God loves his people. And so you saw me last Sunday call her up. And spoke to her that and prayed for her. And then Monday, she sent me a praise report. And then if she wants to say anything, she can. If she does, I just want you to see her. I want God to get the glory for what he's doing. And, uh, and, I, and I love that, that, you know, that, that God is still moving supernaturally. I mean, you can't fake this stuff. God, God's, God's still the supernatural God he's always been. And she just says, praise report. Uh, that my dizziness, headaches, and visual auroras, I guess is how you say that, are gone. They started about one month ago when I stayed home from church for two weeks because I couldn't drive safely. Satan tried to tell me that my Gillian Barn, which is some type of, huh? Guillaume Bray. Guillaume Bray. I can't even pronounce it. Um, tried to, uh, was trying to come back, returning, but I kept reminding him that God had healed me and I would not be paralyzed again. No signs of vertigo or dizziness blessings to you. Amen. And she sent me that on Monday. And, and, and still, I have no signs. I can get up. I can bend over and touch my feet and not fall on my nose. And I just, I just thank God for his love. Amen. I love Amen. Come on, give God praise again for that. It's just... What a great God he is. What a wonderful God. You know, and, and uh, even after service Sunday, my wife's like, why don't you do that every Sunday? I said, yeah, I'd like to. But I'm not the guy that does it. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, but it just seems like all of my ministry life, if those things like that are going to happen, it always comes through prophetic dreams, through prophetic revelation. But the gifts spoken of in the Bible are still real because they're gifts. And gifts we don't earn, because if you earned it, it wouldn't be a gift, it'd be a paycheck. And if it's a gift, you can't unearn it, right? And they're gifts of the Holy Spirit that, that God talks about in his word, and, and, uh, and I, I'm just so thankful uh, that God has healed her and touched her. And as we prayed even at the end of the service, uh, you know, God's not limited to the one person. Well, why would he do it that way? I don't know. Ask him. I'll leave that between you and him, you know. But... Uh, I've seen God do that all my life. I could stand here for hours and tell you of people just like that, that the Lord has healed of 
tremendous, tremendous things. Uh, and uh, I remember one time being, just sit down, let me talk a minute. I remember being uh, at Cornerstone that I started up in Sparks, and I remember, and most of you have heard me if you've been here long, but I, I don't grow weary telling these testimonies. You know, the word testimony, the Bible says in, in uh, Revelation that Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. In other words, whatever Jesus has done for you, when you tell that to someone, you're literally saying, do it again, Lord. In other words, if we invited somebody in to give their testimony of how they received Christ as their Savior, salvation, you would expect after that, maybe if they were people here lost, that they would receive Christ. Why? Because that testimony, do it again, God. Well, it's the same with healing. It's the same with anything. Same with deliverance of uh, drugs or alcohol or wh whatever, whatever your issue is. And I remember uh, the Lord just healing of so many things like that. And, and you go, well, why would God do it like that? Well, it's just something about that. When God does it that way, it just it lifts that faith. When I was able to you know, call Miss Connie by her name, tell her to come up, and, and, and this is what God showed me. Uh, you know, and, and it's wonderful when those things happen instantly, just like that. And we didn't, you notice we didn't, I didn't pray long or anything. Because what God reveals, he heals. Why would God reveal it? Why would he come to me in a dream and show me that if she's still going to be sick? So I've learned to just put confidence in him and just declare what God has declared over her. And, and that is that by his stripes you were healed. You don't look forward to your healing. You look back to your healing. Because your healing ain't got anything to do with you praying or your situation being severe enough. It's got to do with the stripes on his back. By his stripes, not by your prayer. We pray, but what we're praying in is the confidence of the sacrifice that was paid. By his stripes, you were healed. And we claim that. That's in the New Testament, 1 Peter, right? So we claim that word of God, and we stand on that word of God. And sometimes, you know, God speaks things to us, gives us words, and we don't see the fulfillment of it instantly. We all like microwave prayers, right? We like to boom, pray it, and see it happen. And, you know, my experience is that God's never late, but also my experience is God's never early. That's just my experience. Y'all didn't say much on that. Maybe he's early for y'all, but he's always on time. Not my time, not when I thought he should do it or how I thought he should do it, but God will always work all things, like we said this morning, together for good. Amen? To them that are called according to his purpose, Romans eight twenty eight. So today I just want to talk to you about hearing God's grace for the first time. How many of you remember when you heard the message of God's grace for the first time? A lot of people sat in church all their life and never heard the pure, undiluted message of the grace of God. They've heard, I told you, I, I grew up all my life hearing amazing grace in our church sung almost every Sunday in some form or another, and, but nobody ever seemed to be amazed by it. And I never heard one message in all of my uh, decades of being in, in church about the grace of God that was totally a message about this is God's grace, this is what it is, this is what it means. The grace of God is not a six-week teaching, it's not a theology, it's not a doctrine, it's a person, and his name's Jesus. The Bible says that the law was given through, uh, came through Moses, but grace and truth uh, came through Jesus Christ. And so... Uh, uh, Jesus is grace. The first time the word grace appears in the Bible uh, is, is in Genesis. And it said, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so grace has eyes because grace has hands. Grace has a heart. 
because the grace is God. Jesus is the manifestation of the grace of God. And so we are saved by what? What does the Bible say? We're saved by grace through what? Through faith. All right, wouldn't it be proper to say we're saved by Jesus? Who saves you? Who saved you? Who's your Savior? Jesus. We're saved by Jesus through faith in him. We're saved by grace through faith. That's what, that's what the word of God means. Can you all say amen? I'm not confusing you, am I? Okay. So, but I remember, you know, a lot of people, you know, when they hear the message of God's grace for the first time, a lot of times they go, wait a minute, because we, most of us, if not all of us almost, have grown up, if we've been around the church in America, we've grown up on a mixture, uh, a mixed concoction, a hybrid gospel, if you will, of grace and law mixed together. Yeah, you're saved by grace, but now it's up to you to maintain it through the law, and, and which is simply not scriptural, not biblical. Uh, Jesus brought us a new covenant, a new covenant. Say new covenant. And, uh, and, and, and so that's what I want to talk to you about, really, what makes... The, the, you know, the covenant part of that new covenant, the New Testament that Jesus brought. And uh, just to give you a couple of scriptures, I'll hit them fast, but 2 Corinthians 3 and 6, uh, Paul writes to the church and he said, we, are, we have been made ministers of the new covenant, uh, not of the letter. We're not here to preach the letter, the law, but of the spirit because the letter does what? It does what it's supposed to do. It kills you. But the spirit gives what? Life. And so Hebrews 7 and 22 said so much more Jesus became a surety. That means a guarantee of a better covenant. It's a better covenant. It's better than the old covenant, right? And the old covenant has God, you know, God didn't become, a, God, God didn't start liking you at Calvary. God didn't become, his heart turned towards us when Jesus died on the cross. God has always been a God of grace. And we see it throughout the old covenant displayed and, uh, and we see God dealing with people as he is, as a God of grace. Uh, Hebrews 8 and 6 says that we've obtained a more excellent ministry, Paul writes, and he says, insomuch that Jesus, he is the mediator of a better covenant. There it is again, a better covenant, because it's established on what? Better what? Promises. Well, who's making the promise here? God is. And then in Luke chapter 5, verse 36, Jesus is is illustrating and he's talking about this new covenant. Now this thing was blowing their minds because Jesus, I've told you this before, you know, if I was to ask you who was the greatest preacher of the law that ever lived, a lot of people would probably say Moses. But, but that's incorrect. Jesus was the greatest law preacher that ever lived. And Jesus came and, and he preached the law to those that were under the law. The Bible says in Galatians that he was born under the law. He came to redeem those under the law. And, and, and so he preached the law to people that had watered down the law to make it palatable to their own religion to deceive themselves and think that they could make themselves good enough for God to save them or to accept them. And that's the whole purpose of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. That's why Jesus said, you've heard it said that thou shalt not commit a, mur a murder. But I say to you that if you hated anyone, you're guilty of murder. See, Jesus ramped it up. I've had people say, well, you know, he, that, that's, you know, that's the law, but that's, that's not grace. Jesus is saying, you want to live by the law? Let me explain to you what the real spirit of the law is here. He said, now you've heard it said and preached in y'all's churches that thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you that if you ever lusted after another person, you are guilty of adultery. What was Jesus doing? He was using the red letters to kill them. The law killeth. 
It shuts the mouth of those who have boasted that I can live this, I can do this, I can keep the rules. You can't keep the rules. Nobody has ever kept the old covenant. Nobody has ever kept the law, in other words. Nobody has kept the Ten Commandments. And there's no person in America today or any other continent that's keeping the Ten Commandments. You're not keeping them. But it's been a credit to our account that we've kept them now through the one who did fulfill the law and keep it, and that's Jesus Christ. And what he did in fulfilling the law, not destroying it, then he, then he has credited our account for that. Can you say amen? See, a lot of times when people hear grace, they go, well, what about the Ten Commandments? What about law? And, and even before I understood this, when I was just starting out preaching, I would make this statement, and it would really aggravate people, but I knew in my heart I was right on this. And, I, and, and, and listen, and, and even every time I say it now, you know, it aggravates some people. I have an anointing to aggravate religious people. But I said, I will never give you a dime to get the Ten Commandments posted in a schoolhouse, courthouse, or an outhouse. God put the Ten Commandments in a golden ark of the covenant written on stone with his finger. All right? Now, Moses broke those, and we had to do it out again, right? Another story. But he sealed them in there, and then he covered that, those commandments with a mercy seat, then with cherubims on top of it. You ever seen Indiana Jones? You ever seen what happens to people that open the lid to that? All right, in the Bible, God put the commandments there, and he covered it with mercy. And the mercy seat is where the blood was applied by the, the old covenant priest. There was a group of people that stole the Ark of the Covenant from Israel. They opened the lid, and like 30,000 died the day they did it. That's in your Bible. So, so that's what happened to people that opened it to look at it. Because to look at the law without looking at it through the, the eyes and the blood of Jesus is death to you. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit gives life. What the law does is make you know you're lost and that you cannot save yourself and that, that you realize that you need a Savior and his name is Jesus. Well, what, and then people go, well, what is the purpose of the law today? I mean, are we to throw away the Ten Commandments? I mean, it's, the moral part of that is still good. God's still for not killing people. Put him down for that. And he's still for you not stealing and committing adultery, and lying, and worshiping false gods that can't help you. All those things are still in, 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 in force for you. I mean, those are good things to do. The only one of the Ten Commandments that, that, that everybody breaks is, is the only one that says to remember, and that's to keep the Sabbath. Well, the Sabbath started Friday night at sundown and ended Saturday night at sundown. And there's probably nobody in this room that kept that Sabbath. And we all broke it. So we're all guilty. And this Bible that we hold says if you break one of the commandments, and there's far more than 10, there's 413 to be exact of the old law. And if you break, the Bible says if you break one of them, you are guilty of breaking them all. Now do you need a Savior to save you? Do, do you see the point? And the Bible says in Romans 10 and verses 3 and 4 that Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. For, to them that believe. The, Paul also wrote that the law is not for the righteous. Well, who are the righteous? Anybody's born again. You're declared and gifted the gift of righteousness. You didn't earn it, you don't achieve it, but you receive it by faith. And you may not conduct yourself righteous always, and you may not look righteous, but you have been declared righteous. I am 
the righteousness of God. How, though? In Christ Jesus. Because God put me where? In Christ Jesus. See, I walked toward God, and I thought I was going to walk with God, but in fact, I'm walking in God. Y'all just let me know when I say anything that's worth an amen, okay? I'm, I'm, see, Jesus not only went to the cross for me, he went to the cross as me. Jesus died not only for me. Some people, some Christians think all Jesus did, he died for me. No, he died as you. I was crucified with Christ. I was buried with him, and I was resurrected into a new life, not an old life with a paint job. That's what the baptism just symbolized and represented. The old person is buried. The old person held their breath while they're underwater. They stopped breathing. They died. A whole new person is brought up out of that. that that's what baptism is. And, and, we, and, and God just had this portrayed in front of your eyes to illustrate and demonstrate to you that this is what new life in Christ Jesus. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a totally uh, insane misnomer, an oxymoron to say, I gave my life to God. And, but you hear a lot of the church talk like that. You know, you need to give your life, you need to come forward today and give your life to Jesus. That's not how you get saved. See, because that would make salvation something you did. And it would make salvation something that God is responding to what you did in order to save you. And so that makes you the Savior and not God. You didn't give your life to God. You had no life to give. The Bible said you were dead in trespasses and sin. You, 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 weren't, you, weren't, you, you were dead. What, what you going to give God? This worthy of him, I give my life, now save me. No, thanks. And it's, it's the same. No, you didn't give your life to God. You came as a dead man. You came dead. You're like Lazarus. Unless Jesus calls you out by your name, you won't stay in that tomb. You are dead. Religion, grave clothes wrapped around you to try to preserve what was stinking and decay, but it couldn't save you, it couldn't resurrect you. The only way Jesus could save Lazarus is he said, roll the stone away. What does the stone symbolize? The Ten Commandments. The, what did God write the, the, the commandments on? Stone. You've got to get that out of the way. That's not what saves you. Jesus came to fulfill the law. How long had Lazarus been in the tomb? Four days. How long had Israel struggled under the law? 4,000 years. For the day with the Lord is a thousand years. A thousand years is a day. And after four days of that, move the stone out of the way. Jesus is here now. He's come to fulfill this. And he did like he did to Lazarus. He called you by your name and he brought you out of death and into life. You didn't give your life to God. You didn't have a life. You were dead. Adam and Eve didn't sin in the garden and, and, and needed forgiveness. They sinned in the garden and now they need life because God said the day you eat of the tree, you'll die. He did not say the day you eat of the tree, I will kill you as a punitive punishment. No, he said you'll, if you eat of the wrong tree, it brings death. Wrong tree, it brings death to you. And so God came to give them what? Life. He came, he said, I've come that they might have life. I thought he could forgive us. Yeah, he forgave the world of the sin. That's why Jesus died. He removed the sin. But behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the what? The sin of the world. So God don't need your permission to forgive you. He did when he died. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, remission of sin. When's the last time Jesus shed blood? 2,000 years ago. That's when the sin of the world. 
I see people write stuff on, you know, the Lord took away, you know, the Lord took away the sins of the world. It doesn't say that. Him who knew no sin became sin. S-I-N, noun, not verb, noun. It's very important. There's a big difference between a noun and a verb. But most of the church has no clue of that. They see the word sin as something they commit, something they do, an act, a verb, an action. It is not. Most of the time in the Bible, in the New Testament, the word, the word sin is a noun. Only one time in the whole book of Romans, and Romans uses the word sin more than any other New Testament book, and 38 times it is a noun. One time it is a verb. And if you don't know the distinction between that and the distinction between a noun and a verb, you will think sin is something you do. Sin is an entity itself. The first time the word sin was ever used in the Bible, God used it out of his mouth. And that was after Cain murdered Abel. And, and, and God said that, that sin, he, he personified it in the King James Version. He says he desires you. He, he personified sin as a, as a person. He that, that he desires you, that he wants to bring you under bondage, that he lie, it, it lies at the door to destroy you. See, God did that. I didn't do that. God's trying to get you to see something. When sin's first introduced, the word it appears in the Bible. The first, I mean, the whole thing goes down in Genesis. We don't even, there's no word sin even written until Cain murders Abel. And God says, you need to see what sin really is. Because of that entity, that thing, believing that lie, then you do actions that are against God because God in that sense is not your God. God says choose the tree of life. You go, no, I know better than you. I'll go to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and I think I can choose between good and evil and know the difference enough that I can save myself, and you cannot, and you will not. It is as silly as Adam and Eve making fig leaves to cover their nakedness. Temporary at best, futile. You can't, you can't do it. And so what makes the power of the new covenant, the new testament, is because it's new. And Jesus said in Luke 5, 36, you thought I forgot, didn't you? That no one puts a new piece of garment into an old garment. Now what he's talking about is the old covenant versus the new covenant. He says otherwise the new makes it tear and the old piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. Verse 37, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled and the wineskins will be ruined. But the new wine, look what Jesus said, must be put into what? New wineskins. And both are preserved. And look in verse 39. And no one having drunk the old. Now the word wine there is italicized. It doesn't show up on our screens like that. But if you've got a King James Version in your lap or a new King James, you'll see the word wine is italicized. Now, Jesus is really not teaching about wine that people drink here like that. But he's using it as a, as an, uh, a metaphor, an example. And he said, no one having drunk old immediately desires new. For he says the old is better. So if you've been raised like I was on a mixture of law and grace, you're used to that concoction. You're used to seeing God as a punitive God that still wants to judge people. And you hear God preached in such blasphemous ways that, you know, Katrina was God shoving that hurricane to those people. And the floods in Houston several years ago was God drowning a few people to get their attention. And they see every catastrophe and every storm and every sickness. And they'll even blaspheme God to this level and say God gives you cancer to try to teach you something. Or God's trying to get your attention. That's why you got in that awful wreck and you laid in the hospital where you could read your Bible. That makes God no better than the mafia boss. Break a few legs, get a little attention. He's God the Father, not God the Father. 
Amen? But most of the church doesn't see God as that. They read every scripture as God being punitive and punishing and reactive and angry. But the new covenant said when God administers the new covenant in Isaiah 45, that he would never be angry with us again. God ain't judging America nobody because he's already judged the world through Jesus Christ and he bore the sin of the world on the cross. And if Jesus, either, if, if Jesus did not bear all the sin of the world, then he's got, somebody's got to come back and bear the rest of it. And if he did bear all the sin of the world, God cannot punish two different people for the same crime. If Jesus bore the wrath of God for that sin, then you cannot bear it. That would be unjust and unjust for two people, two different people, by the way, to be punished for the same crime. Even the court system we have won't do that. Right? But Jesus said no one, when they first hear the new, desire the new, because they say, hey, the old's better. Because we like to feel like we're doing something and saving ourselves. So that's why we make those kind of statements. I gave my life to the Lord. You did not give your life to the Lord. But we all grew up in church hearing that, didn't we? Give your life to the Lord today. Come down here. You rededicate your life. There's none of that in the Bible. None of it. You come just as I am without one plea. Remember that old song? You got nothing to say. Just believe in Jesus and that's how it happens. And see, that's what makes the new covenant new because it's not based on us. Jesus didn't come to earth to patch up the old covenant and put a new piece of garment on it, is what he said. He didn't come to take the new wine of grace and pour it into the old covenant system and then try to mix it all together and, and, and serve it to you and save you. No, that, that's not what it is. The, the whole power of the new covenant is, is the word covenant. The, the covenant is not made, in other words, the new covenant is not contingent upon you and I. And I know a lot of you know this, but if you do, you need to be refreshed on it again. Now, one of the greatest things that I ever found about the grace of God in the new covenant is that my relationship with God was not contingent upon me. See, I, I used to think that I entered into a covenant with God, that the covenant was between me and God. And that's how really our church kind of taught it. No, no. You, you, the covenant is not between us and God. It's not between no man and God. The covenant is between God and God. That's what Hebrews 6 says when there are two immutable laws, two, two unchangeable uh, things, which was God himself. It says when God could swear by no one greater, he swore to himself. And it says also in Hebrews 6 that God cannot deny himself. God made a covenant with himself in regard to you and I. So one of the greatest liberating things about grace to me is that now I realize that, I, that my relationship to God is based upon Jesus. In other words, God put me in Jesus, and Jesus and God relate to one another in regards to me. It, it, ain't, it ain't based on me. It, it, it's, it's based on Jesus Christ. The new covenant is out of my hands, and it's guaranteed by God himself. This makes it eternal. This makes it unconditional. This, 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 because God, why? Because God cannot lie. He, he swore to himself. And, and, and the, to me, I love the old covenant because even though we're in the old covenant and people were under the law for a period of time under the old covenant, it still has uh, 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 speckled through it, I'll say it that way, uh, videos, is how I look at them, of God's grace. 
One of the greatest examples of that is the story of Mephibosheth. Everybody say Mephibosheth. See, you get five points for saying that. You remember who Mephibosheth is? Aren't you glad your mama didn't name you Mephibosheth? Mephibosheth is the son of Saul. Saul is the son, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Jonathan. And Jonathan is the son of King Saul, the first king of Israel. Now, David, who would later become King David, entered into a covenant with Jonathan. And that covenant is talked about in the Bible. And so they entered into a covenant one with another. And so when David became king, this is what he asked. He asked the question, he said, who is it that is alive? Is there anyone alive from the house of Jonathan that I may show my loving kindness to? And they answered that question and said, there is one son left. His name is Mephibosheth, and he dwells in a place called Lodibar. L-O-D-E-B-A-R, Lodibar. Lo in Hebrew means no. Debar means pasture. God's not kidding when he wrote the Bible. He knows all these little things he's got in there. So it means that he's dwelling in a barren place where there is no pasture, no provision, no opportunity, and no hope. Not only is he dwelling there because he, he, he's in that place, but he is crippled, the Bible says. And he's been crippled since he was five years old. So he's crippled. He cannot walk. He lives in a place with no hope, no pasture, no provision, nothing. And, and he's, he is in survival mode at best. And so David sends his army to go and retrieve him. Now, the reason he became crippled is because he was the son of uh, Jonathan. He and his grandfather is the king of Israel. Guess where he lived? He lived in the palace. But they lied about David. And they said the day that David becomes king, he's going to murder everybody that's connected with King Saul. He's going to murder them all. And so when Saul was killed in battle, along with Jonathan... And the word came back to the palace that they had been killed and they knew David was marching to Israel. Then the, 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 the maid, the, uh, the babysitter, if you will, she scooped up this five-year-old little boy of Jonathan's and she ran for her life from the palace and in that hurry to get out, she fell and she fell on him and broke both of his legs and crippled him for life. See, you ever been hurt by somebody that was supposed to take care of you? One of the most hurtful things that can happen is somebody that's supposed to be a caregiver, a dad, a mom, a grandmother, a pastor, a teacher, someone like that. Someone in authority, they hurt, they molest, they, 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 they do damage to people because you're not supposed to hurt a five-year-old. Daddy's not supposed to molest his daughter. A granddad and it's not supposed to hurt little kid but a lot of people in this world man they're dealing with a lot of hurts that was that was put upon them and it had was no fault of their own but yet satan will lie to so many it's your fault sometimes your reason that your dad would creep in your room when you was five years old and molest you in the middle of the night that's demonic jesus came to set the prisoner and the captive 
free. The prisoner's one that did the crime doing the time, but the captive is somebody just that they just took them. Jesus said, I don't care what happened to you, I come to set you free. I come to deliver you. I come to, to set you free from that. And so now David brings Mephibosheth back. And, and Mephibosheth thinks he's coming to be executed, but he was coming to be restored because listen what David said. Is there anyone alive from the house of Jonathan that I can show kindness? It actually in Hebrew is loving kindness for Jonathan's sake. Why would he show loving kindness to Mephibosheth? Because he made it enter into a covenant with his daddy. When David made that covenant with Jonathan, Mephibosheth wasn't even born. When God made a covenant with himself in regard to you and I, we were not even born. We were not even created yet. But God made a covenant with Jesus that, that I will always be a God of grace and I will always give forgiveness and I will always show my kindness to these people. And then God set and put you in the covenant. See, a covenant has several main ingredients that must be with every covenant. A covenant has an oath that is spoken. That's the word of God. A covenant has a covenant meal. That's the communion. A, a covenant has a sacrifice. That's Jesus on the cross. And the covenant also has a representative. That's the Lord himself, the king of glory. Man, every hair on my head is trying to stand out at attention. That, the, all the ingredients of the covenant. And the most important of all those things really is the representative of the covenant. Who represents us to God? Jesus does. Where did God put you when you got born again? In Christ. If any man be in Christ, it ain't if any man be in church. There's a lot of men and women in church that are not born again. But if any man's in Christ, now I want you in church. That's the reason we're having it. You need to hear the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. But if any man be in Christ, that man is a new creation. I don't care what his mama says about him. I don't care what the people say about him. He's a new creation. Old things, old way of approaching God, old covenant. That's past. Behold, all things now what are new. We're in a new covenant. I used to hear those, those things about the new wine and all, and, and our Pentecostal charismatic understanding of those service verses were not old covenant, new covenant. They were like, you know, here comes a new wave. You know, the new wine is a new drink from the Holy Ghost, you know. I mean, no, Jesus is talking about the new covenant that he brought. There's times of refreshing from the Lord, I understand that. But that ain't what saves me. It's the new covenant. So Mephibosheth is a perfect example because we're just like that. And all through the Bible you see that when God made a covenant in Genesis chapter 15 with Abram, who would later become Abraham, but when he made a covenant with Abram, he entered into covenant, and it says this, that, that, that God took the sacrifice. He took a three-year-old heifer, and, and, and he, cut, he cut it right down the middle, and he had these pieces, these, this animal. And I don't know if you've ever, you know, hunters in the house, but if you cut an animal in half, I don't mean in half this way. I mean in half long ways. That's how they would do it. And they split this animal. It blood everywhere. And they laid it in two pieces. And so just picture there, there's just a bloody animal. And it says when they cut that, the, the vultures, it says in the Bible in Genesis 15, the, 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 they were trying to come in and land on the carcass. And Abraham was doing his best to fight them off of it because he knew God was up to something. He told him to do that. What's God doing? He's demonstrating. Then one thing I learned about the new covenant, God don't need a covenant to show his kindness to us. But we need it written down so we can see that loving kindness demonstrated. 
And so the Bible says the Lord took Abram, and it said he caused a deep sleep to come upon him. You know what that word is? It's the same deep sleep that God put Adam in to reach in and take a rib. In other words, it's death. It's death. So in other words, God took Abram, put him to sleep. You ain't got nothing to do with this. And then it said a, a flaming fire appeared and walked among the pieces. You know what was going on right there? It, our God is a consuming fire. God was making a covenant with God. God made a covenant with himself. God made a covenant with Jesus. And so you got this bloody animal, and, and, and when they would do this in the old covenant, there would be a man on that side, a man on this side. And, and as they, they spoke the word, the oath, they would walk through the blood in the figure eight. And the man that was on this side is now standing on that side. And both of their feet now are covered with blood. And they are saying, what has happened to this animal shall happen to anyone that comes against you. You're, you know, everything that's valuable to you is now valuable to me. Everything I have is now yours. God did that with himself in regard to you. And when that's going on, you ain't got nothing to do with it. You're like Abraham. You out of the picture. You're asleep. Nobody asked God to do a covenant, and no man ever asked God to save them. When, 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 I, when our parents, Adam and Eve, are in the garden, they are not repentive. They're not asking God to save them. They're hiding from him. But God come to save them anyway. People say, you know, God's too holy. He can't look at sin. That's another church saying. It's bull. God's so holy. He can't look at sin. Well, Adam and Eve, best I can tell, sinned in the garden. And best I can tell, God still showed up right on time and called them by name looking for them to walk with them. I mean, it's ridiculous. Ridiculous. So we see that. We, remember those Gibeonites? Remember, you, you remember in, uh, uh, what, I think it's Numbers chapter 9, but you see Joshua, he, he, he makes a covenant, say covenant, with the Gibeonites. Gibeon, God had told them to kill all the ites in the land, drive them out, to get rid of them, right? Gibeonites, Girgashites, Amorites, cause a fight, won't live right, won't do right. All the ites, God said, drive them out of the land. They are unlawfully occupying what the land that I have promised you. This one's called the promised land. Okay, I'll go before you, but drive them out. So Joshua, it says in, in, that Joshua, this and this, this is a mistake we all make or have made. The Gibeonites come up there and they said, you know, we can see all the other ites are getting drove out. We've got to do something to save ourselves. So let us put on dusty clothes, old garments. Let's hang old wineskins on our animals and, and let's have moldy bread. And let's just lie to them to their representative, which is Joshua, and let's just say we're not from here. We're not a knight. We're just strangers passing through. How about making a covenant with us so you don't take our lives and we'll serve you? This is what it said. Joshua looked at it and he does like some of us. This is a no-brainer. I got this. I don't have to pray about this. I know what to do. That's the ones you screw up on right there because it's called arrogance and pride. And this is what it says in your Bible. It says, and Joshua inquired not of the Lord. Go on and do it without praying. It's, take your best shot, you know. You, you can talk to God that knows everything, or you can use your little brain. Go on and make your best informed decision. 
So what did he do? He did what we all do. He went by what he saw. Old clothes, moldy bread. What he smelled, dust. Their words are matching the evidence. I don't have to pray about it. Oh, yeah, nobody would trick you. Nobody in this world would lie to you. If you just take this pill at night and you just take this pill and drink a glass of water, you can get up in the morning and you can shake 10 pounds of fat out of your sheets. That's how good this pill is. You can lose weight. Just call now. And if you call in the next 15 minutes, we'll add another bottle for $19.95. <laughs> he makes covenant with them not to take their life. Afterward, he finds out that he's been lied to. Now, you know what Americans do with that? Well, that don't count. That wasn't fair. He didn't play by the rules. He deceived me. He did this, he did. But who does Joshua really represent? God. And so Joshua, who is in a, in a covenant with God because of the covenant that God made with Abraham that went on down to Isaac, that went on down to Jacob and all of Jacob's 12 sons, and it went right on down to Joshua. So he's in covenant with God. He's God's representative, if you will. And he makes a covenant with Gibeon. Now, these Gibeonites now are heathen people. They're not in the covenant promises of God. Yet a covenant representative made a covenant with them. With You with me? Now, five kings muster their armies and come to destroy the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites cried out to Joshua and said, You made a covenant to protect us. And God moved mightily. And he told Joshua, you go against those five kings and you protect those people. And that is where you and your Bible have one of the greatest miracles ever recorded. It's where God calls the sun to stand still. Give daylight where Joshua could keep on fighting. The sun stood still. And somebody should be running and headbutting something in here. What, what's God show? Why is that in your Bible? Why do we care? Again, our loving God is showing that this is how I'll be with you. You don't deserve it. You're not in the covenant. You weren't in the promises. You weren't even in the deal. But I will protect you. I will fight for you. I will preserve your life. I, I, I have made because of the covenant. Why were they protected? Because the covenant that was made with Joshua, who was in covenant with God. Now, do you get it? God made a covenant with himself before you were ever born. And what you and I do is through faith in that covenant maker, who is a covenant keeper, by you putting your faith that he is not a liar and that he is true and his words are true, then what you do is you are ushered into the covenant supernaturally by the new birth. And you are placed in the covenant maker inside. You are in Christ. I can't explain it. Just believe it. You're in Christ. But yet now Christ is in you. Christ in you is the hope of glory. Without him there is no hope. See, that's why that Paul tried to tell the Ephesian church, y'all stop listening to all these preachers trying to get close to God. Can you imagine at the time that you and I have wasted trying to get close to God? 
oh, I just want to be close to the Lord. Lord, I want to be close to you. No, what you really are praying is you want to feel close. And that's cool. Put on a worship tape. You'll feel close. Come to church. You feel closer here than you do in Walmart. But you're just as saved in Walmart as you are in here. But you feel different. The Apostle Paul said that the only people in this world who's ever been without hope is those that didn't have Christ. He said, for you are outside the commonwealth and the covenant promises of Israel. You were without God and you were without hope in this world. But now you have been brought nigh unto Jesus Christ by his blood. So what is it? You've heard me say it over and over. What is it that makes you, brings you near to God? Was it your prayer? Was your Bible study? Your church attendance? Your fast? None of that makes you nigh to God. What brought you nigh to God, near to God? is the blood of Jesus. So what would it take to make you unnigh? Something stronger than the blood. Let me know when you find what that is. Get back with me on that. Now there are some people that think their sin is stronger than the blood of Jesus. And that their sin can remove you from God's covenant promises and his covenant loving kindness and faithfulness because they'll make stupid statements like, well, you're out of fellowship with God now because you did X, Y, Z sin. Now, God, you have to, God's pouting and God's mad with you and God has actually turned his back from you and God won't answer your prayers, sir, because you had a fuss with your wife so your prayers are cut off. He don't hear your prayers no more because God don't listen to jerks. That's all the junk that we get fed in church. I don't mean intentionally lied, but I was raised like this, a half-truth. My mom and daddy told me a half-truth is a whole lie. Y'all ever heard that one? A half-truth is a whole lie. Well, that applies in church. If you're told a half-truth, you just got told a whole lie. It's not that grace and then we're going to add some law. That's a, no, that's a lie. It's Jesus plus nothing. It's Jesus plus nothing. It ain't Jesus plus you and your efforts. It's Jesus plus nothing. That's how you're saved. Not only is that how you saved, that's how you're kept. Paul told him in Galatians, the same faith that saved you is the same faith that keeps you. He said, why would you revert back now and, and try to, now that you've been saved by the Spirit, you try to live this out by the flesh? He said, somebody had bewitched you. Somebody put voodoo on you, Galatians. That's what he said. He said, somebody put the voodoo, hoodoo on you. The strongest verbal reprimand that the Apostle Paul ever gave any church was the Galatian church. Why? Because he said, you have fallen from grace. Why? Because they slept with their secretary? Because they cheated or lied or embezzled? No, because he said, you are trying now to live it through the law. And that's how you fall from grace. That's how you, see, in the world, you fall from grace when you sleep around or do something wrong. Oh, you fell from grace. Oh, they fell from grace. No, 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 you fall from grace when you try to start being a law keeper. That's when you fall from grace. Because grace is a high lofty place. Because grace is God. Nothing higher than that. That's why he's called the Almighty. <laughs> the most high. He ain't, the, he ain't almost high. He is the most high. Come on, y'all. All through the old covenant, we see those pictures displayed of God saying, this is how I am concerning you. This is how my grace operates. This is who I am. God did not read, need to write a new covenant so he would know how to keep the rules concerning grace. God is grace. 
but God did give us a new covenant so we could see those splashes of pictures of grace. Even David, who was under the law, by the way, King David, who murdered, who lied, who'd done all kind of bad things, which the law said what should have happened to David. What did the law say that should have happened? Even though he's King David, what should have happened to David for having that woman's husband murdered? David should have been carried outside to the city limits and stoned to death. That's what the law says. That's what the law says. What did David do? David, like other people, only one other man that we know of, in fact, in the Bible saw it, but God said about, Jesus said about Abraham, he, he told them one time they were arguing and they said, you, you know, we're the seed of Abraham. Just as in John 8, he said, they said, who's your daddy? You only <laughs> begotten? We heard about your mama. Your mama had sex for you, born boy. You ain't trying to tell us you somebody. Abraham's our father. You don't even know who your daddy is. Jesus said, I'll tell you who your daddy is. He went Bobby Boucher on him. He said, your daddy is the devil. <laughs> and the lust of your daddy shall you do. That's what he said. Are y'all with me? If you don't know Bob Boucher, it ain't the Bible. Don't worry about it. Don't look it up. He said, you, 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 your daddy's the devil. He said, because if Abraham really was your daddy, you would know me. Listen, he said, because before Abraham was, I am. And then he went on to say, Abraham saw my day and was glad. That's why Abraham could offer up Isaac on a sacrifice on Mount Moriah and cut him into little pieces and burn his flesh and know that when he got ready to leave the mountain that him and that boy would walk down together. Because he told those servants, you stay here and me and my son going yonder to worship and we will come back down to you again. Because he saw the resurrection. He saw the power of God. And he didn't know how God would do it, but he knew even if he obeyed God and took the son of his, that son's life, that he, God would raise him up and put him back together, and he would walk down that mountain again. That was the confidence that that daddy had in the covenant that God had made with him. Because God said, son, your seed shall be as the sands of the sea and the stars of heaven. And God told him that in Genesis 15 when he put him to sleep. And when he woke him up, he told him. And so he knew that that boy couldn't get, stay dead because that's where the seed's going to come through. Please, if we put confidence in God. So David said, Lord, I beseech you by the mercies of your loving kindness. And he cried out for mercy, and God gave him mercy. His sin brought a, a horrible pride. David's now. There were consequences, in other words, for his decisions. It were consequences. But... The wrath of God was not poured out even on David who lived under law because David was looking to the grace of God. John 8, a woman's brought, throat at his feet, caught in the act of adultery, and all the religious rock throwers got rocks in their pocket and standing there quoting Bible. Law says you should be stoned. What say ye? They said that to Jesus. And you know the classic story? And I know you've heard my version of it because it's the, it's the right one. Jesus, because the Bible says in John chapter 8, verse 1, that they were, Jesus was teaching in where? You should know it by now, the temple. He was not outside on the dirt road. This ain't South Georgia. He didn't park his four-wheeler. You understand? There's no dirt where he is. He's in the temple. And by the way, the temple, Solomon's temple, had no dirt floors. Okay? Marble. Stone, if you will. 
Jesus kneels down, takes his finger, and writes on that stone. All you preachers grew up here, and I'm telling you, he's writing in the dirt. They just didn't read verse 1. He's writing his finger on stone. What's he writing? I don't know. It don't say. But he's using his finger, and he's putting his finger on stone, and he's writing. But don't you think every Jew in there knew who put their finger on stone and wrote the law that they just quoted? Jesus leans up and says, you without sin, y'all throw your first one. And he leaned down and wrote again. And Jesus is literally saying to them, I believe, how dare you presume to tell me about the law? I wrote it. <laughs> and it said, beginning with the oldest. That always amazed me. To the youngest, they dropped the stones and they went out. When you're young, you want everybody to pay. Get them. White and black. Get them, God. You just ain't got no sense yet. You don't know nothing. Don't write a book at 20. You don't know anything. You shouldn't be allowed to, by law to even publish a book unless you're 50 or older. 20-year-olds 20, 20 writing books on how to be a parent ain't even got a girlfriend. Don't tell me how to be a parent. You ain't been one. Well, I tell you, if I had kids, this is what I, you don't know what you're going to do. Okay, I got to quit. Jesus just looks at this woman, says, woman. Now, she never asked forgiveness. She never repented. She never said boo. Because Jesus don't need your permission to forgive you. You're forgiven. Whether you receive it or not, you're forgiven. The woman, where's your accusers? She looks up for the first time. I have none, Lord. Neither do I condemn you. You're not condemned. Now, he did say go and sin no more. But you cannot have the power to go and live what you really should live, which is true to yourself, living under no condemnation. Because those that are in Christ, there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. And so how are you going to live that non-condemning life? Because you've got to know that you're in Christ. Christ is not condemned, so you can't be. Never. I don't care what they said. There's no condemnation for you. That word condemnation means punishment. One of the most blogs I wrote says, what if you are unpunishable? Oh, my God. Did the religious come out against me? They could not conceive that a Christian is unpunishable. You are by God. God won't punish me. He already punished Jesus. How are you going to punish you? I didn't tell you there ain't consequences. You do wrong, you're going, there's going to be consequences. You're going to hurt, suffer. And, and God don't want you to do it. God's not like saying, go sin willy-nilly. I mean, God, God don't want you to sin. He encourages you. He has the Holy Spirit not do you. And when you do sin, it grieves his heart. Because he loves you and it hurts you and it hurts him. He don't want you to do it. But it don't have anything to do with you being his kid. It don't have anything to do with you being his kid. Nothing. He said, woman, I give you the free gift of no condemnation. Though you didn't ask for it, you didn't repent, and you didn't tell me it's going to be better. But I still don't condemn you at all because it ain't based on you. It's based on me. It's not because you're good. It's because I'm good. So you're forgiven. You can get up and walk out of here, and I would really like for you to go and sin no more because this brings a lot of hurt. You see all this pain and all? Come on, girl, don't do this no more. You're better than this. Live who I made you to be. Okay? That's what Jesus did. That's what covenant is. Would you stand with me? Did y'all get anything out of this today? If you did, it's the Lord's fault. Give him praise. Lord, we love you. Man, if we can't do anything else in here today, we should say, Lord, thank you so much for the new covenant. Thank you, Lord, it ain't based on me, my weakness, my ups and downs. Oh, it's, it's, 
Boy, when I found out that that covenant was between God and God in regard to me, that gave me such confidence to live. It ain't based on me. It, it, it ain't even about me. I wasn't even into paperwork on it. But what it is is it was between God and Jesus, and then God got ready to put me. He put me in the representative of the covenant, which is an eternal covenant. And so now I'm in Christ, and so I get all the benefits of that covenant. I get the provision, the protection, the salvation, the eternal life. I get all that because he's the one that made the oath the, in regard to the covenant. So I get all the covenant promises. And over and over we see these words, loving kindness. Notice that King David didn't say, is there anybody left of the house of Saul that knows palace protocol whom I can show my kindness to? No, he said, I got to drop to the one that's in covenant, Jonathan. Is anybody of Jonathan's house? That's my covenant man that I can show kindness but for Jonathan's sake. Why is Christ going to do it for, for, why was God going to do anything regarding you? For Christ's sake. For Christ's sake. Because you're in Christ. God put you in Jesus so he could treat you like Jesus. He put you in Jesus so he could hear your prayers like Jesus prays. That's why you don't have to go find that person that's close to God to get them to pray. Because you're as close to God as you'll ever be. And you've been made close. You may not feel close and you may not live where you look like you're close to God at all. You may look like you're a million miles, but you're born again. You're still close to God. You, you, you have been put there by the blood of Jesus. And if you would just knock it off and quit trying to get what you already have, you would start to live out of that revelation that's in your spirit, the part of you that got born again. And you would sin less and love your life more. You really would. You believe that? I don't know how to explain it to you no better than I did today. You, you should just have such confidence in that. It's in Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said, if you've got a sermon without Jesus, you need to quit preaching until you can find one. Because you've got nothing to say. It's all about him. It's all about him because he is grace. Now, you might be hearing this for the first time. I hope not. But I hope you're not hearing it for the last time. That you know that that covenant promise is yours. You receive it today. Father, we love you. Amen. And we're so loved by you. We thank you that when we leave this place, you're in us. We're in you. You go with us. We give you praise for that. You'll never leave us, forsake us. We're close to you. We've been made close by the blood. God, we thank you for the covenant promise and the oath and the representative and the meal and the sacrifice and all that makes up that awesome eternal covenant in Christ Jesus. May we live Never be delusioned by the lies of the devil that we dwell in that covenant promise. We're just like Mephibosheth, undeserving, but we sit at the king's table now. We've been protected like the Gibeonites, even though we were outside the promise. Now we've been brought nigh by the blood. We give you praise for your covenant display of grace that you've given us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. I love you. I'll see you next Sunday.